If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. listening to the BBC History Magazine podcast. My name's Dave Musgrove and I'm the magazine's editor. I'm Rob Attar, the features editor. And I'm Charlotte Hodgman, the section editor. So this is the September 2010 podcast, coming up this month. Really without the Korean War, you, you don't get the US intervention in Vietnam. That was Tim Benbow on the Korean War. The novel cleverly wove one of the legends associated with the chapel into its storyline, which inspired a huge number of people to come and visit the chapel. That was Helen Roslin on the restoration of Roslin Chapel. But in a sense, it was so unthinkable. That was Helen Castor explaining how difficult it was for a medieval queen to rule. And the girls on the YMCA there and under the trees must have thought, there they go again, but they'll be back in a few minutes to finish their donuts and kefir. It certainly didn't occur to them that in a few minutes, those 12 hurricanes rapidly disappearing out to sea would be facing the onslaught of an early armada. And that was the Battle of Britain pilot Group Captain John Peel remembering the summer of 1940. This monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. 60 years ago this month, the Cold War was heating up in Asia. Since the end of the Second World War, Korea had been split into a Soviet-dominated North and a US-backed administration in the South. In 1950, Communist North Korea launched an invasion of the South, which was halted by a massive UN military intervention led by the United States. With North Korea then in danger of defeat, Chinese troops arrived to support their communist allies. The situation eventually stabilised, but the war would last for three years, and at its conclusion, Korea remained divided, as it still does today. Well, in this month's magazine, Tim Bembo of King's College London has written a piece about the Korean War. I caught up with him recently to get the lowdown on the conflict and on the unsung role played by the British military. Just to set the scene, what was the situation with the Cold War when the Korean War began in 1950? Essentially, before the Korean War began, the V in the US was that the main problem they faced from the Soviet Union was more bullying and intimidation than the threat of overt military attack. So the response to that, the policy response, was primarily economic and diplomatic. So the Marshall Plan to give economic aid to the European allies to rebuild their economies, creating NATO to give them some sort of reassurance. Gradually, through 1947, 1948, 1949, things started to look a bit more worrying. The blockade of Berlin, giving rise to the Berlin airlift, the coup in Czechoslovakia, and then particularly the Chinese communist victory in the civil war there really started to make the world picture look a little more alarming. There was a rethink within the American administration about policy towards the Soviet Union. And they started to debate an idea of a more military form of containment, essentially saying the problem is going to be more military than we'd previously thought. This document was still being discussed at the time of the Korean War, and therefore that had a big impact in terms of getting this more robust, more military view of the problem and the response accepted. So in June 1950, North Korea invades the South, and in the feature you've written for the magazine, you say that the Western powers were caught by surprise by this communist invasion. Why were they surprised? Well, they weren't expecting this sort of action on the part of what was sensing as a communist bloc. Before then, Stalin was mainly seen as, yes, being expansionist, but being risk-averse, putting a little pressure on, but backing down if he was met by counter-force. So over Iran, over Turkey, over the Berlin airlift, he'd back down when the West responded forcefully. So I think they weren't expecting such an overt attack. I think there was also the view that if there's going to be a war, it's going to be a total war. The idea that there would be a limited conflict restricted to one region did come as something of a surprise. And when the North Koreans invaded, how did they expect the West to respond? I think what you see here is a misperception of the United States' response. To be fair, there were some signals 
if you like, that suggested the US wasn't very committed to South Korea. There'd been some statements by officials that seemed to suggest that South Korea wasn't seen as a, a vital US interest. So I think the view was in North Korea, but also in Soviet Union China, that it wasn't seen as essential by the United States. Secondly, I think they felt confident that militarily they'd be able to sweep past the South Korean forces and take the peninsula before the US could make any military response. So I think they were essentially expecting some angry speeches in the Security Council, but really not very much more than that. And you talk about the Soviet Union and the North Koreans. Who is actually in charge of the North Korean war effort, would you say? The main decision was taken by the North Korean leadership, particularly Kim Il-sung, but he had sought the approval from the Soviet Union as his main backup for this. And the Soviet Union and China had both given him backing on the assumption that it would be a quick victory, it would be a gain for their cause, it would be a blow to the prestige of the United States around the world. So they backed it, although the main decision point in terms of going to war was in North Korea. You said that the North Koreans didn't really expect a strong military response from the West, but as you know, that's not what happened. Why did the West decide to respond in force? When the US was confronted by the attack on South Korea, it was very clear to the administration that they needed to respond to this. I think firstly, there was the perception around the world that South Korea was an American ally. If at this point they simply abandoned them and let the country fall to attack, this would really hit the credibility of the US. Who else would trust them after something like that? Secondly, I think inevitably parallels were drawn with the 1930s when military aggression was ignored and that was seen as simply encouraging further aggression. On top of that, I think the US view towards the Cold War, as I said, had been evolving. There was a view that important interests were involved in South Korea, particularly in terms of Japan as being a, a vital interest. I think the view was that if more states are allowed to fall to the communist bloc, eventually the balance of power will tip too far against us. I think there was also a political factor that made things even more difficult. The democratic president in the US had been blamed for what was seen as the fall of China. Um, It was a rather strange idea that the victory of the Chinese communists in the civil war there was somehow the fault of the administration. But they'd taken a lot of political heat over that. I think the fear was that in the growing atmosphere of alarm and concern of this period of the Cold War, if they were seen as letting South Korea simply fall, then they would be punished for that politically at home. So although the US was leading the way, it was actually a UN military response to the invasion of South Korea, and Britain was one of the parties that got involved. Why did Britain decide to participate, do you think? In some ways, I think it was a natural thing for Britain to do. Again, I think the parallel was drawn with the 30s, that the need to stand up to military aggression to avoid seeing it repeated elsewhere. I think on top of that, it was seen as important for Britain's policy towards the Cold War to get United States support for Britain's efforts in the Far East. I mean, at this time, Britain had troops in Malaya fighting a guerrilla war, an insurgency there. Also had a garrison in Hong Kong and was rather worried about the threat from China. So encouraging the US to see Britain as an important ally that also merited support in the Far East, I think, was another factor. Possibly the most important one, though, really the key aim for British policy was to get a concrete American military commitment in Western Europe, an American military presence to guarantee the defence of Europe. And I think it was almost seen as a quid pro quo, that we're going to be helping in this war on the other side of the world. Therefore, we hope that the US will help us in Europe. At this point, although you've got a left-wing Labour government in power in Britain, Britain very much sees itself as aligned with America and not the USSR. Absolutely. Bear in mind that the key figures in the Labour government had been in the coalition government during the war. I think, although in some quarter of the Labour Party, Churchill, with his initial concern towards the Soviet Union, even during the closing months of World War II, some saw him as going a bit far. I think the government, the Labour government, was four square behind the Americans in perceiving the Soviet Union as a threat. I mean, in some ways, Britain was quicker to perceive that than the United States was. Really, what you see from the end of the Second World War to the start of the Korean War is gradually the Americans coming around to the British view and hence taking over our position in Greece, Turkey and so on. So there were some on the left of the Labour Party who maybe were more sympathetic to the Soviet Union. But I think very quickly in the Labour Party opinion generally in Britain that was on the left, after the Second World War, the Soviet Union rather brutally establishes control over Eastern Europe. I think some of the idealism that had been directed towards our wartime ally was eroded. I think really it was a fairly 
majority position in the Labour Party, certainly in the government, that the Soviet Union was increasingly threatening and that the Korean War was a, a challenge that had to be met. What kind of force did Britain send out into Korea? Initially, the commitment was primarily Royal Navy. There were Royal Navy units in the region and they could be dispatched quite quickly. It also fitted what seemed to be needed at that stage of the conflict. Initially, it was going to be solely a naval commitment, particularly aircraft carrier, but also cruise and destroyers. Initially, it was seen as undesirable to send land forces, partly because there was a fear that it could be a diversionary attack before you know, further war elsewhere. So it was seen as undesirable to send land forces because they'd need to be diverted from elsewhere, either from the Far East, from Malaya or Hong Kong, or from Europe. So initially the view was that the British government should just be naval, not land forces as well. A few months after the start of the war, though, the decision was taken that really the political benefits from sending land forces in terms of the influence on American opinion was worth it. So Britain sent a brigade of troops, which eventually, together with another brigade and troops from Commonwealth countries created a Commonwealth division. So there was a land commitment eventually. There were some RAF aircraft dispatched as well, but not many because there were a few air bases available in the region. And those that existed were already quite crowded or they were too far away to be ideal. So the Royal Navy's aircraft carriers provided the main air power that was used by Britain in the conflict. So the Korean War lasts from 1950 to 1953. Can we see a winner of the war, would you say? Well, it's an interesting question. It seems odd that people would disagree over who won a war. But there was a debate in the US. I think some Americans, particularly on the right of politics, had a model of war very much like that of the Second World War, that victory meant you achieve everything you're aiming for. They hadn't quite, I think, understood that in the Cold War, when you have a standoff between the superpowers, regional conflicts are not going to be like that. This gives us the idea of limited war where you don't necessarily use all the force you have available, but also you can't necessarily achieve everything you might like to. So some in the US saw it as the US was defeated because communist North Korea still existed. I think most at the time, and certainly the way it will be seen since, say that the US and its allies, particularly South Korea, did win in the sense that they achieved the aim of preserving an independent South Korea. They did not achieve the more ambitious aim, which was pursued for a short while during the conflict, of unifying the Korean peninsula. So in that sense, I think the Western side did win, although with a more limited objective. In terms of the final result, I think China could live with it because at least they preserved North Korea as a buffer state, thereby keeping the United States and their allies away from the Chinese border. But the North Koreans and the Soviet Union maybe were less happy about the outcome. How important would you say Britain's contribution was to the overall outcome? I think it was significant. The United States had by far the lion's share of the forces committed to the conflict, something in the region of 300,000 US troops, 44,000 from other members of the United Nations put together. The peak Commonwealth commitment was something like 20,000. So numerically it was enormous. But I think it certainly was significant, particularly at some key moments of the war when the British forces played an especially notable role in certain actions, certain battles. In some ways, though, the contribution could be seen as being more important politically, diplomatically. You could almost compare it with the role of the British forces in the Pacific War at the end of World War II, or, I mean, much more recently in the 1991 Gulf War. Militarily useful rather than essential, but politically, diplomatically quite important to have another power sharing the burden in that way. What would we say was the impact of the Korean War and the Cold War in general? Oh, it had a huge impact. It was really a turning point in the Cold War. It very much changed the way that this emerging conflict was seen. It became much more intense. It became far more military in terms of how the threat was perceived, but also in terms of how that threat would be met. U.S. defense spending hugely increased. NATO became far more of an institutionalized military organization with U.S. and other forces committed in West Germany. More broadly, Germany and Japan became far more consolidated within the Western alliance. There was far greater suspicion between U.S. and China. So I think it greatly increased the suspicion at this stage of the Cold War. What it also did was it led to the U.S. really taking on the Cold War 
more in Asia. So it began supporting Britain in Malaya. It began supporting the French in Indochina, which of course eventually became the US commitment in, in Vietnam. Really without the Korean War, you, you don't get the US intervention in Vietnam. And it also really consolidated the US alliance with Taiwan. So it had huge impact in the Cold War generally, and also specifically both in Western Europe and in the Far East. How would you say the war affected Britain's defence and military policy? Well, similar to the US, at the start of the war, you see a significant increase in British military spending. Essentially, before the Korean War, the view in Britain was that war with the Soviet Union wasn't going to come soon because they weren't ready for it. It would take a while before the Soviet Union was ready to go to war. And there'd be a, a warning period before it did come. And when this war occurs suddenly without warning, this shakes both of those assumptions. So the view is that war could come far sooner and it could come without any warning. So you see a rapid expansion in defence spending. Uh, various military programmes for all the services are hastened. A lot of new equipment is brought in to meet this apparent threat. Within a fairly short amount of time, though, it's clear that this increase isn't sustainable and you start to get the increases scaled back. And then as you move on through the 50s, the process of reassessing the approach to the Cold War, particularly moving towards concentrating the defence policy on nuclear weapons, which it was hoped might make uh, defence policy more affordable. And finally, 60 years after the Korean War began, how do you think we should remember the conflict now? I think it should be remembered as a significant British military commitment. The forces deployed there achieved a great deal. They were seen as making a very important contribution to what really was quite an important campaign. I think the implications had the communist side won in the Korean War would have been quite grim in terms of the balance in the Cold War, particularly in Asia. And while the British military contribution wasn't indispensable, it was certainly an important part of it. So I think it is something that deserves to get more attention than it does, um, not least because it was, at the end of the day, a successful campaign. Britain and its allies did achieve victory. That was Tim Bembo. As I mentioned, you can read more about the Korean War in our September issue. Roslyn Chapel in Scotland featured in Dan Brown's best-selling novel, The Da Vinci Code. Since then, grower hunters, Freemasons and historians alike have flocked to the chapel, which is now undergoing a £9 million renovation programme. In this month's issue, Helen Roslin, chairman of the Roslin Chapel Trust and Countess of Roslin, explores the chapel's rich history, the impact of Dan Brown's novel and shares some of the chapel's best-kept secrets. So Helen, perhaps you could begin by telling us a little bit about the history of Roslin Chapel. Yes, Roslyn Chapel was built in the 15th century and it was built by the St. Clair family. Um, and in the Middle Ages, they were one of the most powerful families in Scotland. And the St. Clair family had come across to Britain from Normandy in 1066 with their cousin, William the Conqueror. But they quickly came north and became allies of the Scottish king, who at that time was Malcolm. And this close link continued throughout the centuries, so that by the 15th century and the date of the building of the chapel, Sir William St. Clair had also acquired the title of Prince of Orkney, so he was really quite important in those days. And his intention was obviously to build what was known as a collegiate church. And a collegiate church, the idea behind this was that it would become a kind of college so that not only would it be a working church for the community but it would also be a place where priests and choristers could live and they would then be paid to pray and sing mass for the souls of the family members and for example in the case of Roslyn Chapel it was not only the founder himself who um, provided money for the priests and choristers but in fact it's documented that the father of his second wife also paid for a priest to say mass for his particular soul. So in a sense, it was, it was a real form of patronage and sponsorship, if you like, in those days. And, and for me, this is one of the interesting things about the chapel, because it really tells us just how central and powerful religion was in the Middle Ages. If you consider uh, what this chapel would have meant to the local community, for a start, it, it took over 40 years to build, so it would have given employment to a whole community of stonemasons and carpenters, many of whom travelled into the area to work on the chapel. And it's even documented that Sir William St. Clair built houses for his employees. So that is how the local village of Austin first came into being, which is quite interesting. And then 
on top of this, the collegiate church would also have been a focal point for the community. So, um, you know, it would, it would have been like a community center, really, much more than we um, treated church today. And it continued after the death of the founder, who died in about 1486. It continued as a working Catholic church for over 100 years. And then the St. Clair family, when the Scottish Reformation took hold in the 16th century, the St. Clair family held out for as long as possible. But by the 1590s, uh, they were forced to demolish the altars and abandon it as a place of worship, um, which is when it fell into disrepair. So then from this point, it lay pretty well abandoned for over 200 years um, until the 19th century, when the third and fourth earls of Roslyn carried out huge repair and conservation work, and it was finally rededicated and reopened in 1862, and it's continued as a working church ever since then. You mentioned in your feature, which is published in this month's issue, um, that the release of Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, had a profound effect on Roslyn. What changes have you noticed as a result of this? Yes, it, it actually had an astonishing impact on the chapel. Um, we'd already started our conservation programme, and, and gradually our visitor numbers had started to climb. But with the publication of this novel, numbers just suddenly increased fourfold over a period of two years, so that we went from about 40,000 visitors to about 175,000 visitors a year at its peak. Um, and we were absolutely astonished. But I suppose, you know, the novel cleverly wove one of the legends associated with the chapel into its storyline, which inspired a huge number of people to come and visit the chapel. And it really couldn't have happened at a better time for us, because it gave the chapel prominence just at the moment when we're trying to raise funds to preserve it. Do you think that it um, opened Heritage up to a new type of audience? Have you noticed any changes in the types of people coming to look around the chapel? Well, yes, I think necessarily it must have done because of the vast increase in numbers. And if you think about it, certainly at the turn of the century, the the sort of people who were coming to visit a chapel uh, were quite specialist. Whereas a lot of the people who've been inspired by reading Dan Brown's novel have come perhaps to see something particular. But I think what's fascinating is to see the impact it has on them. Um, because, you know, they, they can't fail to be moved, really, by the astonishing carving in the chapel and even, you know, just the magical atmosphere of the building itself. Has the chapel experienced any other surges in popularity during its long history? Almost exactly 200 years ago, uh, Sir Walter Scott wrote uh, a ballad which was entitled The Lay of the Last Minstrel. And in exactly the same way, he used one of the legends associated with Roslyn Chapel in as his storyline and exactly the same sort of thing happened at the beginning of the 19th century there was a sudden surge in popularity so much so that um, coaches were even laid on from central edinburgh to bring visitors out to the chapel and why do you think freemasons feel such a special link with the chapel they're just one group of a number of groups, actually, who seem to feel a special link with the chapel. And I'm not an expert in the particular area of Freemasonry, but from groups of Freemasons I've talked to, uh, they do definitely feel it's their historical home, in a sense. And I think one of the reasons for that is that there is an apparent historic link between the St. Clair family and Scottish Masonry, certainly. Because if you think about it, in the 15th century, so William St. Clair dedicated his life to the building of this extraordinary chapel. And he was asked in um, that time by James II of Scotland to become the Grand Master of Scottish Masons, who would have acted as a kind of mediator in disputes between fellow Masons. So it was quite an important position. So, And I think... This is obviously a very historic link for Freemasons. And then when the Grand Lodge of Scotland was founded much later in 1736, the first elected Grand Master Mason was Sir William St. Clair, a direct descendant of the chapel's founder. So that is really, I think, the reason for the link. And there are certainly carvings in the chapel which the Freemasons always gravitate towards, Okay, and um, what restoration has been carried out on Roslyn so far, and what future plans do you have? In the middle, actually, of a huge um, conservation programme, uh, which is 
it's a nine million pound program from start to finish and it started over 10 years ago by putting a huge great steel canopy over the roof of the chapel which has had the wonderful effect of drying out the stone in the chapel because this has really been the great problem with the chapel. The stone has just become saturated over the years because of slightly leaky roof and leaky windows. And as a result of becoming saturated, it then starts to crumble. So what we're now doing is working to put on a new watertight roof and to seal up the windows so that we can then take the canopy off. And from then, the slightly longer work longer-term work is going to be stone conservation, which is going to be carried out over a period of probably five years. But, you know, it's endless. The work that could be done, obviously, can go on and on. You've recently filmed a BBC documentary on Rosling Chapel, which is due to be aired later in the year. What was that like for you, and did you learn anything new from the experience? Yes, it was absolutely fascinating. It was, it was The Stones of Rosslyn was the... Um, title that it was given and it's been absolutely fascinating for me um, to have an opportunity to look into the early history and the actual building of the chapel in the 15th century because so much of what has been written about the chapel has concentrated on either Templar links or the later legends associated with the chapel and sometimes when you're very closely involved with a project you don't really allow yourself the indulgence of spending much time on research but for me, particularly as an art historian, that's one of my passions. So some years ago, I became involved um, in a project to um, document the number of painters and poets who were inspired by Rosslyn. And I asked the National Gallery in Scotland whether they'd ever be interested in putting on an exhibition. And they said, yes, they would if I curated it. So I did that. And that really made me look into the 18th and 19th century and the emergence of landscape painting but I've never had an opportunity before to look at the actual building of the chapel and what the inspirations were behind Sir William's choice of this building. So it's been really fascinating. Um, and for those listeners who are maybe hoping to visit um, Rossing Chapel one day, what are the sort of highlights that you would suggest they look out for when looking around the chapel? Well, it's very difficult I, to, to pinpoint any highlights. I, I think every time I go into the chapel, I see something you know, new or look at something I didn't look at last time. Uh, and I think everyone finds their own highlights, which is what's so fascinating about it. It's difficult to give an idea, really, of how it is. But I was just thinking that, in a sense, the overwhelming level and profusion of different carvings is almost as though you might think Sir William St. Clair was not able to decide which piece of jewellery to give his wife, for example. So he just gave her everything that he could think of and asked her to put it on all at once. So it's certainly not understated, and, and there is definitely something for every taste. And everybody picks out a different thing. Perhaps if I had to pick one out, I love the carvings of the seven virtues, or acts of mercy, as they're called in the chapel, with the seven deadly sins on the other side. And I, I've chosen those partly because they're still so clear and so legible, but partly because, you know, they remind one of the fact that the chapel was built at a time when many people couldn't read, so that carving these moral tales into the stone was the best way of reminding them how to live their lives, moral tales and biblical stories. That was Helen Roslin, who features in this month's issue. In the 12th century, England was riven by civil war over whether Matilda, the daughter of King Henry I, could succeed to her father's throne. Helen Castor has written a feature in the current issue of the magazine about why the great men of England railed against the idea of a female ruler. I had a chat with Helen to find out more. Right, so you've written a piece uh, for this issue about Matilda, the daughter of Henry I. Now, in 1135, after her father died, she was the only legitimate child surviving and thus the obvious heir to the throne of England. The problem was that she was a woman. But actually, was that a problem? Well, yes, it was, but in quite an interesting way. Um, the thing about kingship in the 12th century was that it was essentially and implicitly male, in that the job of a king um, essentially consisted of things that 
only men could do uh, according to contemporary assumptions. So a king had to defend the kingdom by leading an army into battle and he also had to give law and justice to his people um, by acting as a lawmaker and sitting as a judge. Now, women didn't do either of those things in the 12th century. Um, so it was a problem to think about having a woman as king. But in a sense, it was so unthinkable that there was no rule to say a woman couldn't do it. Uh, and that was the difficulty that Henry I found himself in on his deathbed with only a daughter to leave his throne to. And that was the challenge that confronted Matilda when her father actually died. Mm. So, so was there any precedent at all for having a, a, a female ruler on the throne? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, no in the sense that um, reigning monarchs had not been female before. But of course, there were powerful women. There were powerful wives of kings, powerful mothers of kings. So... The difficulty really was that there was no clear precedent about what should be done in this situation. Okay. And Hen Henry I had uh, tried to clarify Matilda's position by getting his nobles to swear that they would support her as the heir to his throne. And indeed, they queued up to do it. He was a very authoritative king, and they had said, absolutely, of course, we'll be there for her. But when he died, it turned out it was a rather different matter. Yeah, sure. So, so the, the the fact that he said something that, that his nobles um, acceded to that, they said yes, that's fine because he he was such a dominant personality exactly. and, and presumably a man. <laughs> Quite. Um, but but so it all it all was, it all was looking rosy up until the time that he died. But then when she when she tries to 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 follow up on 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 you know on what he said, that's when we run into trouble. So um so you, you've you've said in 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 the feature in the magazine that she was trying to become a king, a female king. Um, um, was that in, in any way ever going to be possible, do you think? Well, that was the big question she faced, and she came tantalisingly close. I think that's one of the extraordinary things about her story. It wasn't that the minute Henry I um, died, all the great lords said, oh, well, we were only saying that, of course, we didn't mean it, of course, we're going to have a male uh, monarch. Um, it, it, there was enough support for her cause that England was plunged into 20 years of, of civil war, not just England, but England and Normandy, because of course, um, at this stage, the kings of England were also dukes of Normandy. So the really interesting thing about Matilda, I think, is how close she came and then exactly what happened when she came her closest to getting her hands on the crown, because it was then, in a sense, when power was almost in her hands, that the issue of her being female um, really began to um, come out into the open in a way it hadn't when it was a question of two conflicting claims between her and her cousin Stephen, who was the one who was challenging her for the throne. Mm -hmm. And and so when she, when she did um, when it looked like she she could have become this this female king that's when the nobles start getting twitchy and and, and what happens so how do, how does that how does that manifest itself? Well, of course, one one of the um, issues we have here is that that, that our account of what happened uh, at, at this point in 1141 when when Matilda was was at her um, closest to the to, to the crown, um, our, our account of it comes from the chronicles which um, are narratives written with a certain amount of, of hindsight. But the dominant uh, explanation that comes through the Chronicles that's more or less straightforwardly been accepted by most historians ever since is that at that point when Matilda was preparing for the coronation that she thought was going to make her Queen of England, she suddenly became extraordinarily proud, haughty, arrogant, unwilling to listen to advice. And by revealing herself in that way, uh, alienated all the support that she'd gathered up to that point. Now, that, that is, as I say, the standard account that was given then and that has been accepted since. But actually, if you look closer at that account of, of what she's supposed to have done and how she's supposed to have revealed herself, I think what we're seeing is a male political society um, struggling to accept what they're seeing before them, which is a woman 
acting as a monarch. In other words, Matilda was doing what she thought monarchs ought to do, that is, to be commanding, to be authoritative, to exercise power uh, in her own right and according to her own judgment, which after all is exactly what her father had done. He'd been called the Lion of Justice, he'd been this extraordinarily um, dominant, um, powerful king, and in a previous part of her life, um, Matilda had also been married to the Holy Roman Emperor. So, you know, she'd been used to powerful men and seeing how powerful monarchs ruled. And in her own eyes, she was a monarch taking power. So she was starting to issue commands on her own authority. And the the kind of classic account in one of the um, major chronicles that we have for this period is really quite extraordinary when you look at it in detail. It says, essentially, that she was terribly haughty and arrogant because she no longer did what her advisors told her as she had promised she would and as she ought to have done and wanted to arrange everything on her own authority. Now, to me, that sounds like a monarch mm. <laughs> ruling, mm. but it, it caused problems. It raised hackles because she was female and because the um, uh, appropriate modest demeanor of the female sex was being, um, uh, it, it, she, she was not living up to that, but then she couldn't if she was going to do that and rule at the same time. Is it is it anachronistic to talk about sexism here, or was it, or is that a, a fair description of, of, of the nobles' attitude towards her? Well, it is anachronistic in the sense that um, clearly the word sexism, you know, the, the concept of sexism, you know, didn't exist then. Um, I suppose what we what we need to get into the mindset of in order to understand what was happening here um, is is a set of assumptions about what the proper order of creation was and the proper order of the relationship between the sexes that women had their own proper virtues but they were virtues to do with um, nurturing supportiveness. Uh, you know, queens were powerful figures, but they were the wives of kings. That was what the word originally meant. And their role was to support their husband, sometimes to embody his authority, but only ever in in that kind of legitimate secondary way. Whereas to see a woman standing alone and to see the full extent of what that might mean if she were to be a monarch in, in the full sense, uh, challenged all sorts of assumptions about what it meant to be a good woman. Uh, and it's quite noticeable, for example, at this point, that um, Stephen's wife, uh, that is Matilda's cousin's wife, who w- was his queen, also unfortunately and very confusingly called Matilda, um, she was busy at, at that point in 1141 championing her husband's cause because her husband was in, imprisoned by Matilda's um, forces having lost the Battle of Lincoln. Mm. Uh, and his wife was busy mustering soldiers on his behalf, um, you know, formulating a strategy by which to keep his cause alive. She was praised by the chroniclers for what she did, because of course she was doing this in the name of her husband. The really challenging thing was Matilda standing alone on her own authority daring to command the political community in her own name. And that's where hackles began to be raised. But but it is nevertheless interesting that still no one was making the explicit argument that women could not and should not rule. It came out in this sideways way of, well, of course, it would have been all right if she hadn't been so arrogant. Um, there's still this this openness and fluidity to 12th century politics that means that uh, the hard and fast rules that perhaps come in later as precedents become more um, more established and, and more clearly articulated aren't quite there. So, so there, there are all sorts of possibilities open in 12th century politics and that's what makes it so interesting to see what actually happens when Matilda gets close uh, to power in this way. And, and just on Stephen, we haven't talked much about him. So, no, so just, quite. Just very briefly, was he? Did he have any issues with Matilda as a woman, or did he just want power for himself? Um, it, that's that's a very good question. Um, quite what Stephen 
what was going on in Stephen's mind, it would be wonderful to know um, at that point at 11.35 when he acted to seize the throne for himself. Before that point, he hadn't voiced any opposition to his uncle's plans for Matilda. In fact, when Henry I demanded that his nobles swear allegiance to Matilda as his future heir, um, Stephen's reaction was to have a squabble with the King of Scotland about who should be first in line to, oh, in fact, not with the King of Scotland, sorry, the King of Scotland swore first, and then um, he, Stephen had a squabble with Matilda's illegitimate brother, the Earl of Gloucester, mm. about which of them should be the first in line to swear that oath. So Stephen had more than once sworn allegiance to Matilda as Henry's heir. And in fact, that was something that, that caused him a few political problems when he did eventually make his challenge for the throne because he ris- ran the risk of being called a perjurer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the, in the moment, he didn't hesitate at all. When news came of Henry I's death, he was straight on his horse, straight across the Channel to England, straight to Winchester, the ancient capital of Anglo-Saxon England, where very conveniently his younger brother was bishop, and uh, there he took control of the treasury and got himself crowned. So uh, clearly a very ambitious man, clearly a man who felt he had the right qualities to wear the crown of England, um, despite the fact, of course, that he had, he had an elder brother. So, it, you know, it, it really was an opportunist moment, not any claim to you know, lineal rights in that sense. So um, given that he was, you know, stepping forward in front of his own elder brother, the fact that he was also stepping forward in front of Matilda, to whom he had sworn allegiance, I mean, clearly all of that was swept aside in the moment. And ambition, conviction, whatever combination of things carried him through that moment and then the next 20 years. So, um, so we, we get these, these, these the two decades of, of civil war as a result of that, and then neither of them actually really comes out as a conclusive victor. And and, and the, the 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 final upshot is that Matilda has to give up her claim to the throne in favour of of her son, who went on to become Henry the Second. But, right. but, but Stephen ruled in between the to- in between that time be- until he died. Um, so, so Matilda didn't win, didn't become the, the, the female king, though she did score a victory of sorts. But what's, in conclusion, what's, what's the, the, the result of her experience? What, how did it help or hinder future female rulers in England? Um, really, it left them struggling with a very murky precedent because in all sorts of ways, Matilda did win the long game. That is, she... Uh, established that her birthright came first. Stephen's sons were disinherited in favour of her son. Um, she was vindic- you know, her position was vindicated in very, very important ways. But the cost of that was her own decision to step down. And, and again, I think that that's important to stress. It's not that anyone else is elbowing her out of the way. Mm she made a strategic decision as her son was approaching adulthood that her cause was best served by stepping back and allowing him to step forward. Uh, So as the centuries went on, I mean, in fact, the issue didn't raise its head again for quite some time because England had a long unbroken run of male heirs. But when the question did arise again, it's very interesting to see how it plays itself out. For example, if you look at 1485, the Battle of Bosworth and the coming of the Tudor dynasty, now clearly that's a mess in all sorts of ways, um, you know, in terms of hereditary right. I mean, the Tudors should never have got anywhere near the throne, really. So essentially, that is the crown won on a battlefield. But insofar as Henry VII had a lineal right to the throne, it came through his mother, who was still alive when he took the throne. So, in a sense, the precedent that Matilda set, uh, and that one could say that someone like Henry VII followed, was that women could transmit claims to the throne, but not take it themselves. And that if they did try to take it themselves, Matilda's experience would suggest England would be doomed to uh, internecine conflict, terrible civil war, and so on. So, in other words, it's not a very happy precedent for the prospect of female rule, and it helped to fuel anxiety about the possibility that you see in 
for instance, someone like Henry VIII, who uh, clearly thought the possibility that his daughters might succeed him uh, as uh, something really alarming, uh, better than anyone else's children succeeding him, but, but not what he wanted for his kingdom or for his dynasty. Sure. And that, of course, that, that whole story eventually leads into into the, the female queens, Mary and, and Elizabeth Henry VIII's um, daughters. But that's, a, a, I fear, a topic for another day. And, another uh, but, day, uh, exactly. But a topic which is explored in your book, isn't it? So, <laughs> that's uh, right. So, uh, so, yeah. so, so um, listeners would be well advised to, uh, to, to have a look at that. Helen Castor's book, She Wolves, The Woman Who Ruled England Before Elizabeth, will be published on 7th October by Faber and Faber. And you can read her feature on Matilda in the September issue of BBC History magazine. Finally, this summer we've seen the 70th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. We cover the topic extensively in the September issue of BBC History magazine. And also in September, BBC Audiobooks is releasing a new CD, Battle of Britain, using remarkable material taken from the BBC archives. We've got a short extract from that CD, which I hope you'll enjoy listening to. In particular, we hear the recorded voice of Group Captain John Peel, whose modest, measured delivery is in marked contrast to the heroism and outstanding leadership which earned him the distinguished flying cross after he was shot down for the second time. People could see the battle unfolding in the skies above them. It was becoming their battle. It looked like tiny little slivers of silver, little flashes of silver. They were, you know, so tiny, so high up, and the sky was beautiful. Beautiful, clear blue sky. It was marvellous. And they were weaving about and sort of, you know, up and down. It was difficult. You couldn't, I, I couldn't tell which was, which were German planes and which were English. They were so tiny and so high up. The Battle of Britain, perhaps because it was in full view of, of the public, it was almost like a public entertainment. I mean, 1940, anybody could walk out of their front door if they lived in London or Kent or anywhere around home counties two or three times a day and they would see the battle going on and I think that because of this it was much more in the forefront of everybody's mind and I've often thought it was given a undue importance and significance perhaps because of it. Whether or not this is so if the public on the ground felt involved with the events in the air the pilots too felt a link with the country beneath which they were fighting to defend. Pilots like Group Captain Peel. I remember a quiet corner of Sussex with the long line of the downs and the heat haze shimmering. I can picture again our hurricane standing in the shade of tall elm trees, the spire of Chichester Cathedral and the gleam of sunlight on Chichester Harbour. I remember the sudden release from tension and the comfortable feeling of content and achievement when we flew in low from the sea, the final throwing back of the hood and the long, lazy sweep into land over the downs the taxiing in across the field, the cutting of the switches, and then the silence and the sudden hot smell of summer. And if the covers to the gun ports had been blown aside and the leading edge of the wings blackened with cordite, then Shorty and Joe, the fitter and rigger, would have noticed it long before you came in over the far hedge, would have come running up, eager to help you down, and by innumerable questions to share in the triumph or disappointment of their own particular kite. But whatever memory I have of those days, the telephone rings urgently and insistently in the background. That was the operations telephone in our dispersal hut, and its note meant more to us than any human voice. It came to us through the open door of the hut, over to where we lay sprawled in our shirt sleeves and May Wests in the shade of the trees. Often it interrupted a sentence which was never finished, but always it sent us scrambling to our hurricanes. Then there would be a feverish clipping on of parachute harnesses, a maddening struggle with helmet straps, a whirring of self-starters, a few staccato coughs from a protesting engine, and then a shattering roar of twelve Rolls-Royce Merlins bursting into life. And so off over the roofs of Chichester, twelve hurricanes heading out to sea over Selsey Bill. And when the telephone rang on that summer morning of the 8th of August, it seemed to us no more urgent or insistent than usual. Someone shouted across from the hut, Scramble, patrol convoy south of Selsey Bill. 
and the girls on the YMCA there and under the trees must have thought, there they go again, but they'll be back in a few minutes to finish their donuts and cocoa. It certainly didn't occur to them that in a few minutes those twelve hurricanes rapidly disappearing out to sea would be facing the onslaught of an aerial armada, and the thought certainly didn't occur to us. Far below, the little ships, the same little ships we patrol so often, crawled on towards the west in two long lines. Some of the ships were flying balloons, and they glistened white in the sunlight. To the north, the Sussex coast stretched from Beachy Head, past the old familiar landmarks of Selsey Bill, the Solent, and the Isle of Wight, away to Portland Bill in the west. And in the south, towards France, great banks of white cumulus clouds tarred up to prodigious heights. And out of the south they came heralded by a sudden sharp warning over the radio, very many bandits approaching you from the south. I suppose we all had different thoughts, but I remember thinking as the cloud of little back dots grew steadily nearer, this is it. This is what you've been waiting for. Being struck with a strange feeling of unreality and detachment that never left me through the days that followed. I thought of my own home, only five minutes flying away across the downs, I picture them sitting down to breakfast, my father reading his paper, and my sister pouring out the coffee, and the sunlight streaming in through the big French windows. It seemed so much a part of my life, a part of so many lives, it couldn't be given up. We worked round into the sun, climbing hard, and soon the first wave of dive bombers passed below us. We went into the attack together, each picking his own target. Out of a corner of my eye, a balloon burst suddenly into flame and went down, a vivid red gash against the sea. I remember watching my own particular hun growing in the sights, larger and larger, the black crosses, the details of the paintwork, and then the pilot's head. I remember wondering whether he was looking at the little ships, and hoping he wouldn't look round. And finally, the pressure on the gun button, the shattering vibration, and then somebody's voice very urgently over the radio, look out, 109s, and then the dogfight. It only lasted a few minutes, but it seemed like ours. There were glimpses of aircraft flicking past, some British and some German. A billow of white as a parachute opened out, a flash of flame as a Hun went down in flames. And always in front, one's own particular Hun, diving, twisting, zooming, rolling onto its back, till the final dive, the final squirt, and the feverish prayer that the old hurricane would pull out in time and stop that horrible, fascinating rushing up of the sea. One of the most vivid memories I have is that diving and pull-out, holding on as long as you could to get the chap, and wondering if you left it too late, and the awful moment when you pull out and aren't sure if you're going to make it. That was the start of the day, perhaps modest in comparison with the many battles that followed during the weeks of August and September, but it was a fight I personally remember most vividly, because it came so suddenly out of those peaceful surroundings. The Battle of Britain is available to buy on CD from bbcshop.com and all good booksellers and to download from bbcaudiozone.com and other audio digital retailers. BBC History magazine is published every four weeks in the UK and costs £3.80. Look out for it in your local newsagent or supermarket or take advantage of one of our great subscription deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. Details are in the magazine and on the website www.bbchistorymagazine.com That's it for our September 2010 podcast. Thank you, as ever, for listening. Next month we'll be discussing Mussolini, sick children and Roman Britain.